Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the um, NAB Creative Master Series. Um, I'm Paul Rodriguez with the MPSE. I'd like to thank the um, NAB, our friends at ILM, and Skywalker Sound for making all this possible. Um, I welcome you to, um, to check out the uh, motion picture sound editors. I'll be around here later on if you want more information. Uh, and with that, I'd like to introduce you to <clears throat> Brian Bishop, who's our moderator today from The Verge. Yeah. Brian? Thanks, Paul. Um, First of all, thanks to everybody for coming to you know come to our discussion of this very tiny, small, independent film called Star Wars: The Force Awakens. <laughs> um, uh, and it's my pleasure to be up here with some of the most incredibly talented people in their fields: um, visual effects supervisor Pat Tubach, supervising sound editor Matthew Wood, and visual effects art director um, uh, James Klein. And these guys put together a lot of amazing things for you to see and hear tonight. Um, but unfortunately, we can't record or you know, take photos of any of those, so I'm the bad guy. Um, but before we start with that, I want to ask these guys a question. Because every time I talk to somebody at ILM or Skywalker Sound, it inevitably comes up that Star Wars was some sort of like seminal, formative moment for them that set them on the path to working into their field. Um, so I'm just wondering for you guys, was that true for you three as well? And what was it like when you first found out that you're going to be working on Episode Seven? Um, well, for me, uh... Star Wars was definitely one of those highly influential movies that, as a kid, I, I think Return of the Jedi was the one that hit me in the sweet spot for, you know, I think at least two birthday parties went to see the movie, you know, so. Um, I, it had a huge effect on me, and then when I found out that I was going to have the opportunity to work at ILM, I remember just, you know, running to the phone and calling my mother, of course, it's the first person you call, and, uh, and I said, you know, and I could end up working on a Star Wars movie, you know, it was still like pie in the sky, like, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm going to go to ILM, I hope it happens, and I got to work on episode two and episode three as well. Um, so it's huge, and it's been a huge part of my career, and I honestly never thought episode seven would really happen. It, it just was one of those things that, you know, it just George didn't seem to have an interest in doing it, and I didn't think it was going to happen. And, um, and so when I found out um, that it was happening and that I was going to be able to be on it, it was, again, that same mind-blowing thing. I probably called my wife this time, but... Um, <laughs> probably a good call. It's yeah, a good call. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, same thing for me. I, I uh, was a young kid when the first ones came out as well, and I remember the first time I even knew the filmmaking process and what it even was was because of Star Wars. I had the oversized Marvel comic book. It was this, the whole Star Wars thing uh, in comic book form, and the very last page it had a picture of Alec Guinness in his full Obi-Wan garb, but then there was this other guy sitting next to him in a chair, this scruffy guy with a plaid shirt and a big coat on, and I was like, I don't, who is that, Mom? Like. I don't know. I saw the whole movie, and that guy's not in it. Who said that? Well, that's the director. He made the movie. That's George Lucas. So, what, the actors don't just make the movie in front of the camera? That's, so that, that, for me, was the big, like, you know, there's people that make these movies, and then I really got interested in, like, how they make the movies, and what, what are they doing? And, and uh, yeah, to get an opportunity to work on it again, that's funny, I called my mom as well. Uh, right right no when shame. that, Yeah, no shame. And same thing, like, uh, yeah, we just, episode seven seemed like something that was just going to be a fan want that was going to be out there. And um, I worked on all the prequels, and uh, so coming into seven, ten years later after a Sith was a real dream come true. And to see the passion behind it with new filmmakers with their own uh, take on the universe was a great thing to be a part of. Uh, I think for myself, it was, it was a similar thing. Maybe it's because we're around the same age, but yeah. I was eight uh, during Empire Strikes Back. And uh, I remember I found this book in the bookstore. It was a sketchbook of Empire Strikes Back. And it was all just black and white, just little sketches. And I had no idea what the process of filmmaking was. But this book somehow gave me a little light into um, what art direction and art is, that there's actually artists behind filmmaking. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I still have that book. I have all these really horrible, crappy drawings in it that I've drawn over all the beautiful artwork. I still have that book. It's all dog-eared, but uh, very seminal kind of influence on, on definitely all of us. Yeah. Well, it definitely seems the work that you've done this time is kind of like inspiring a new generation of people. So congrats on that. Oh, thank you. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously Star Wars, ILM are inextricably linked. So, I mean, Pat, I was wondering if you could talk about, um, you know, like the, the workflow and all that kind of stuff that went into when you started the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, Star Wars and ILM, in fact, actually, I have a clip that, that probably illustrates that really well. And we can, we can um, show that. But, but basically, um, the, you know, sort of the art department or, or the art of Star Wars, you know, Ralph McQuarrie in the, in the original... Um, with those original designs of those characters and those ships and those buildings, that whole aesthetic and, and um, you know, he, he created sort of this imaginative world that um, George Lucas sort of paired with his, his innovative filmmaking style, you know, his desire to create a movie that nobody's ever seen before. And in order to do that, you have to have images that nobody's ever seen before. You have to have something inspirational to get people into um, this, this universe that you're creating. And I think that it was sort of a perfect marriage of that. Not only that, but he found a bunch of people that were as interested in making films as they were, as he was, basically. Right. You know, and he needed a crew of people who were willing to, to go that extra mile and take it um, to a place where uh, it, it was outside of the traditional Hollywood boundaries. They were doing things that people had never done or wouldn't let them do if they, you know, if they knew what they were doing. They probably would have said, you know, shut this down right now. Yeah. But they, they ended up making this amazing piece of art and technology you know, that is Star Wars. And those two things are very much linked. And ILM and, and art are very much linked. And, um, so anyway, yeah, we have a, I have a, a redundant slide to talk about who we all are. And then um, uh, some basic facts about the, the film, which was that it was about uh, 2,100 visual effects shots in a couple of years of visual effects involvement um, in the filmmaking process. A lot of people tend to think of um, visual effects as a post-production process, but in fact, in, in sound in the same way, that you start very early on working with the filmmaker to develop sort of some of these ideas that are eventually going to be executed in post, but you have to get in very early and, and talk about what you're going to do. Um, there were about eight visual effects facilities involved. Um, we have ILM Singapore, uh, London, uh, San Francisco, of course, uh, Vancouver. And then we have a partner company, uh, Base Effects in China, that we worked with in hybrid uh, in Montreal, and a, a company in Vietnam, Virtuous, who did some assets for us. So it was a very much a worldwide kind of, uh, you know, a, as visual effects films tend to be these days. But of course, having ILM sort of at the helm and having so much ILM involvement really meant that we had a lot of control over this particular, particular project. Um, and of course, there are hundreds of visual effects artists and, and, and even hundreds more of production people and support staff and everyone that makes this stuff happen. And I'm sure the, the sound department is, is quite large for a film like this as well. Yeah, I mean, we started the same thing. It was a couple years earlier. JJ, a couple years before the, we finished, and JJ brought us all and pitched the movie to us at, at Pinewood, uh, myself and the two sound uh, designers, and uh, started working, I mean, even at the script inception, just to get ideas about what to go out and record. And it was very similar to the way that Ben Burtt and George Lucas worked together on the original Star Wars. Ben Burtt's the original sound designer of a lot of the iconic sounds of Star Wars. And his idea was that we always, we start when the script is ready, and we can go out and into the field, record as much material as we can to bring back to the studio to give us inspiration for what's coming ahead. And so it was very inclusive uh, from the J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot camp to come in and be part of that uh, very early on. So that, that's certainly a, a, a luxury or a great thing, actually, about working on the Star Wars films is that particular thing. James, did you have something similar when then in your eyes doing like conceptual art and that kind of stuff early on? Yeah, I mean, it was a unique opportunity in that we had Lucasfilm, our kind of you know uh, production entity, um, right, right next to us. It's like we're all kind of this tight little family. So it wasn't like we had a client down in LA. We were all in kind of un, under one roof, in a sense. And um, 
So we started a small art department, the seven of us, um, just tucked away in a corner with a sign saying, do not enter, with like Darth Vader cut out on it or something. <laughs> very, very ominous. Effective. Very effective. Um, yeah, and effective. Yeah. We had people in there all the time. Um, but um, it, was, it, was a, it was a lot of just, um, it was a lot of talking initially. It was a lot of just getting in a room with some people like um, Dennis Muren and Roger Guyatt and, and John Knoll and these kind of big guys that have been around it. And Dennis Muren was there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So to hear his perspective on what it meant to be Star Wars from his point of view was, was I mean, it was, it was amazing just to be in the room with them. And, and again, a lot of it was just dialogue and a lot of just talking. And uh, the seven artists would kind of sit there and scribble some ideas and kind of go back to our our workstations, but um, it was an amazing opportunity to be in this kind of room with these guys, just throwing ideas around. Right. I think this is the guy that you were talking about with the yeah, the bushy-haired yeah. guy with the um, plaid shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so this is you know illustrating that fact that that we're bringing together you know the imagination of George Lucas and the art department, Ralph McQuarrie, Joe Johnston, and all those guys that that sort of helped conceive of what the world visually looked like. Um, and uh, it was kind of a perfect marriage of those two things, and I think that's what really made. Um, Star Wars what it is and then this next clip is the one that shows you a little bit about the history and how interlinked those um, Island and Star Wars are kind of together So we'll go ahead and let that play No pressure <laughs> Yeah um, So uh, with that in mind uh, the way that episode seven started for us, I don't know if everybody remembers this, but this was a, a tweet from the Bad Robot feed that um, this force for change that JJ was a big supporter of, the charity um, event that we did earlier in the year. Um, uh, this came to us and JJ had said, hey, let's do a thing where I'm gonna write a note and we'll have the note inside of uh, Luke's hand and uh, we'll put it against this backdrop. Uh, we'll find something that we shot. I think it, at this, this time they were out um, shooting on Skelly Michael Island. They were, yeah. And so nobody, so this was sort of the beginning of that sort of mystery that JJ wanted to introduce to everybody. He, he, it's like, you knew he wasn't gonna tell you a lot about episode seven, but he was gonna drop these little clues. And you know, he's like, let's use this for the background and you'll just put Luke's hand on there. And I'm thinking, there is no Luke's hand. We don't have a Luke's hand. And so then we had to go and research, like what could you see of Luke's hand in, in you know, um, in, End of Empire. Yeah, in, in mm -hmm. Empire, when he's in the X-Wing, you get to see a little bit of his wrist, and that's pretty much all you see. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had to then, James, you know, we, we got together and we said, okay, well, we know also kind of what Anakin's mechanical hand looked like, mm -hmm. and we sort of extrapolated those two things and sort of built this thing that we thought looked a little more mechanical, a little more weathered, a little more beaten. We um, had a um, geometry, uh, Dave Folger found some geometry from three, I think, yeah. where we had Anakin's mechanical hand, but... We knew it couldn't be that. It had to be something Different. else. Yeah. And so it was really fun you know, to, to be involved early on in, in, in coming up with these things that no one had ever seen before. And being able to dig back into the archives of the Star Wars movies and extrapolate that out into a new idea and then put that out for everybody to see. So it was, a, it was one weekend's worth of fun yeah. you know, that we had early on. And then um, you know, this was just long before we did anything real on the movie, but it was cool. Yeah. This is cool. I didn't know we'd learned the secrets of the tweets of Star Wars. Which yeah, we, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. Right. All sorts um, of clues. <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, we're talking about the, the VFX pipeline, right? Like, you know, like yeah. you guys have a very, uh, over, over the years, you developed a very, very specific way in which you, you guys work. Yeah, we, um, you know, and it's, it's, no, it's not really different than, than the way other visual effects um, uh, facilities work, but, uh, and I, I hate to bore people with it because I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, but, you know, basically sometimes you have images that come in and then we always get images out. That's a guarantee. We're always putting images out. But, and you have all these different departments that you see up there on the screen, and sometimes they're all involved in a shot. Sometimes only some of them are involved, um, depending on the complexity of the shot. But I, I think, you know, one thing you can always 
um, count on is that there's been some amount of art and design um, put into it, um, kind of either in the assets that you're using in the shot or uh, in the concept of the shot itself. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, sometimes we're we're doing very simple things, and sometimes we're doing you know very complex things. But um, it's all part of you know serving the story, trying to tell the story that the director's after, and, and trying to get an image out that that works for him. So right. Um, and so uh, I think this next section, we're going to start uh, talking about the graveyard a little bit and dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, and I think Matthew's brought some uh, yeah. a clip here of the Falcon Chase. Um, I thought that I would just um, uh, read a little note here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, I have a section here of uh, the Falcon Chase, basically. And it covers a lot of items and sound as well as visual. So it is the longest clip we're going to play. It's about five minutes. So, But it's Star Wars, so I hope you guys like it. <laughs> Get away with it. Here we go. There it goes. <laughs> now, we're, now available on Blu-ray DVD. Job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Matthew, that sequence. Yeah. There were so many things to talk about in that sequence. But the the Tie Fighter scream, the Falcon wine. These are sounds yeah. that are like embedded in our cultural consciousness. Uh, for you tackling this sequence, what were the challenges in kind of recreating those sounds, and what other things were present in the sequence? Well, it's funny, like as you say, like the, a lot of those. There's so many iconic sounds that Ben Burt had created at Skywalker Sound that we didn't want to change. We wanted to make sure we had the best high-quality versions of those. So I went back to a lot of his original uh, original recordings that he had done and made sure I used the current A to D conversion technology today to get a really high-quality signal to, to to have. But things like um, it's funny, the TIE Fighter sound of it coming in when she hears it, and we wanted that to really play, that's the TIE Fighter. We actually didn't have a sound of the TIE Fighter that was that long in our archives, because a lot of the, we're, a lot of pass-bys. Mm -hmm. There's like a really, there's a slightly long one in New Hope as they go by uh, into the um, Death Star. So we uh, went back to some of the original elements, which is this elephant sound, and then it's uh, cars driving over a, like wet pavement mixed with that, and so we actually re conceived another one that say it would be in the same zone like that. So we don't want to change those things because sound has such an easy sort of emotional and subliminal way to put you back in a universe again. Um, and it's not on screen. So we have this like kind of back door into your mind to, to ground you back into the universe again. And that, that was one of the things that we really wanted to do to have people feel like we're going to be part of Star Wars again. Um, and there's stuff we'll talk about in a little bit about how we changed some things. But like even the weapon on the Falcon, we hadn't really he heard it shoot in an environment where there's air. So we took some of the base, which was a, uh, the base elements of that, which is a 50 caliber weapon fire. We mixed that with some classic sort of Star Wars laser to make that new uh, shot that, it, that, it's, that it, you hear. But even the little things in those scenes, like the sound of his chair moving in there, we wanted to make sure that was original. So we found out the kind of motor that was used in the original. And we, we got that motor again and re-recorded it to get the sound so it would be exactly the same. So we just really wanted to ground it, because we're all huge Star Wars fans that work on the film, so to get a chance to put something in there that, that, that pays respect to that is, you know, and J.J., I mean, it, that stemmed all the way from J.J. Abrams all the way to us. I mean, we're all fans of some yeah. form, and J.J. was the director, and he really made that mantra for us. Yeah, it's such an interesting idea of basically creating something that only works if it feels familiar, but you also have to go and, like, you know, move the ball forward and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, you know, that graveyard sequence in particular, you know, there are so many familiar elements in there, um, you know, the downstarter story and that kind of thing. You know, James, and you guys were doing, like, yeah. the conceptual work for that. What were, like, the creative directives that you guys were working with? Uh, this was fairly early in the process where um, we had this idea of a, a battle that once had happened. And what, what is that? What is that? Is that a, what kind of playground can we use that to our advantage? And um, I think it even might have been a JJ idea of this, this once past battle, all these ships wrecked and um, 
I think initially it was more of Ray and her speeder kind of traveling through some of those moments. And, it, and as it progressed, it became a bigger and bigger moment in the, in the movie. Um, and that's kind of um, just that little piece shows how involved uh, everybody is from the whole process. And that it could, it could start as a small idea. And the more people that are brought into it, the more we kind of contribute to it. And filmmaking is a collaboration, if anything. And um, as, as more people got involved, this, this idea evolved with it uh, into this, this big sequence that we saw. Right. Were there ever any things where you guys said, like, we have too many things, we have like a, an ADAT and an ATS, do there like too much stuff? Or how do you figure that out? Because like it has to read, even while things are happening really quickly. I think one thing, it, it took us a while, the artist to understand that one thing that is so Star Wars is its simplicity, that it's a very simple silhouette. I don't know if this came from Ralph McQuarrie or if it came from uh, George's mind directly, but you know, if you just look at the Falcon, it's a very simple shape, and you can understand that shape against a TIE fighter shape and against a, a Star Destroyer shape. So I think we eventually thought that the, the biggest kind of element in there should be a Star Destroyer, yeah. and then everything else can kind of play off of that, where initially we had rebel fleets, and we had all these different ships, and it became kind of a bigger thing, but, but it didn't have that Star Wars memorable effect. So it, it went back to that one shot. I think it's one of the first shots in the first trailer, which is seeing her speeder kind of go yeah. across right. camera. And it, it became just a big triangular pyramid. And that's, that's all you need. Yeah, to and do. I think that's, that was really effective, because it was, uh, it was one of those things that you could watch people as they were watching that shot, and you could see their faces change. You know, as you went right. from "Oh, it's it's a speeder in a desert" to "Oh my God," yeah. you know, it's, it's a star to star. <laughs> and it was a really fun moment to um, to see them, you know, witnessing that and seeing and seeing the reaction to such an iconic ship that they know, and all the it, questions that come flooding from seeing it. it it's a testament to the design of of that ship of being such a simple ship, and, and what Matthew was saying about the sound. It's there's such an iconic, simple sounds that. Um, we don't even have to see a TIE fighter to know that it's a TIE fighter. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was really difficult was actually um, coming up with even just the pieces of junk that were going to be in the, in the graveyard. It, you, you, it sounds easy, and you say, oh, well, we'll just throw some random Star Wars stuff in there. But it is really hard to find out, figure out what random Star Wars stuff is. Mm. <laughs> because there are very few ships that actually have the size and the, and the scale um, to, to be seen, for one and to stand up against those Star Destroyers or else they just get lost, you know. Right. And then to come up with these pieces and to try to figure out, you know, engines were great because you could break them off and you could have them sticking part out and, and people could kind of understand what that was. And the, um, the top of the Star Destroyer was really iconic and, and that was a great thing to be pulling out all the time and having it sticking out from different angles in the sand. But once it became sort of amorphous shapes, it, it started to lose something. So we had to try to find those, those angles and those pieces that really felt good and really study um, what the old ships look like in order to pull out those kind of iconic shapes. Mm -hmm. um, I think this piece was one that um, uh, Yannick Dussault, our, um, one of our art directors on the film, did uh, that was an early concept of what, the, uh, of what the Falcon going into the Super Star Destroyer was. At first, it wasn't even a Super Star Destroyer. It was, it was just a regular Star Destroyer, and we had much more stuff around it, you know, and then uh, it sort of evolved into what the shot was. But, um, and this is another great one he did, just of uh, just showing the scale of things. Kind of this was, I think, for you know when Ray comes out, maybe conceptually what she mm -hmm. might be seeing. Yeah, we we had an idea where um, early on where they had these tugboats that would drag big derelict pieces from space onto the planet and just kind of ram them into the planet. Um, and I, I think this one kind of reflects that where they were just in these massive craters. So again, it's just showing the, the creative process of throwing out all these crazy ideas and seeing what sticks. That, right. that was actually 
one thing too though, uh, about uh, this new movie with JJ is that the fact that we could watch all your CineSync sessions that you guys had with all your visual effects uh, departments around the world and we would all call in and be looking at the latest shots and sound was invited to be part of that so it would also give us inspiration to see even work in progress yeah. we could watch we were at the Skywalker Ranch you guys are in the Presidio and then but we was we were all synchronized with our films to be able to mm -hmm. listen to JJ give his direction from Santa Monica uh, over CineSync and watch all that and get inspiration from it and be part of the process really early yeah, that was on. cool um, I have a little bit of before and after stuff that, that I'll just let play, but basically this details the, uh, you know, uh, kind of shows what we had to work with when it comes to Ray looking around the ship. And I think the big thing about this sequence was that we were trying to show in very few shots a little bit about Ray's character. Mm -hmm. You know, I think JJ was very into the fact that, you know, we wanted to see her inside the Star Destroyer. But we didn't want the audience to necessarily know right away that it was a Star Destroyer. We wanted them to kind of come to that realization, and that's why you can see in here that there's some clues, you know, just in terms of the, the sort of shapes that you see and the pill lights on the wall. And I think, you know, fans would kind of recognize the top of the hangar there that she's in when she jumps down. I'm sorry, this is actually not in uh, movie order exactly. But, and then, you know, seeing that, that is almost exactly what some of the concept art was, you know, this gigantic thing perched on top of the, um, on top of the sand dune. And then seeing her slide down is a little bit of fun, you know, I think thrown in there because um, there's the sense that she's kind of a daredevil. She's capable at what she's doing that she is, you know, a kid. She's sliding down a hill, basically, you know. Um, so there, there's a lot you get out of those very few shots and, and kind of an insight into, into her character, I think, at the beginning of the movie, which is really cool. Um, yeah. This is an exterior chase shot that just shows a little bit about the amount of CG work that went into building the desert. Um, and I think, you know, the environment was not only challenging because of all of these pieces we had to put in, but just creating the desert itself, which is so complicated and, and has all of these different looks. Um, that was really helped by actually going on location in Abu Dhabi, shooting, seeing the desert, how it actually looked in all those different you know, lighting conditions and being able to recreate that in our work was, right. was really helpful. You show me something, told me something earlier about a little like Easter egg in that moment. You Secret to... about the shot. Yeah, yeah, there's actually, it's difficult to see in this breakdown, but right at the moment where this wipe happens, you can see there's a, uh, the pilot ejects. So he's safe, he's fine. That guy totally lived. Um, <laughs> <but wait. laughs> We put, we put it, we just thought it would be fun, you know, to have, to have him. Ejecting in space does you very little good, but on, on the planet we thought we'd have him escape. It's just a G.I. Joe thing, it's good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, uh, this shows you a little bit of a breakdown of the, all the 3D geometry that went into, you know, a lot of these things that, that we call environments are just such a mix these days of both full CG geometry and um, matte painting, the, the, the old techniques of matte painting that, um, you know, that we've done for a long time, but now, of course, we do it all digitally, and we have the opportunity to put all this 3D geometry in there, and, and some things we build out to, to a, a huge extent, as you can see from the Star Destroyer. Um, and again, that was really fun um, to try to come up with exactly what the Star Destroyer was going to be, what did it look like on the inside. Um, we had never really seen the inside of a Star Destroyer or the, you know, the actual inside guts of a Star Destroyer before, so figuring out what those shapes were, what would you see if you were inside of it, um, and we quickly figured out that a regular Star Destroyer is not nearly big enough to fly through for, you know, a minute or whatever this, this mm -hmm. chase, chase takes yeah. place. It's, um, but the Super Star Destroyer is about, you know, three times at least that size. So it, it was provided plenty of uh, opportunity for <laughs> flying through all these little passageways. And as far as design goes, we really riffed off of um, kind of what you see in the Death Star. You know, if you think about that Death Star chase in Return of the Jedi, where they're going through, they really love those little slots that you can just yeah. barely fit a Millennium Falcon through. Perfect yeah. for flying <laughs> through. So we, we put a lot of those in. And they don't have very many new ideas, the Empire. No. Right. So. <laughs> right. Um, Speaking of that chase, 
The radar dish. Yes. Where did the idea for the new radar dish come from? Well, maybe you can talk about that a little bit. I think Darren Guilford, the production designer, was involved in that. Yeah, it, it, I think it started with a conversation of what does the Millennium Falcon look like 30 years after Return of the Jedi. And we, um, we threw a lot of ideas around of that it deliberately looks just awful. So when Han Solo sees it for the first time, he's like, what have you done with my ship? And in the same way that I, I think Lando Calrissian at one point said, like, what did you do with my ship? Kind of yeah. thing. So deliberately making it a little bit uglier. And, and this illustration kind of portrays that a bit of adding some junk on top of it. Uh, and it eventually got whittled down to, well, we never see it post um, missing its radar dish from Return of the Jedi. It's flying through one of those, as Pat said, convenient little slots, <laughs> loses its radar dish. But what does that radar dish look like? And um, I think someone at, at one point said, well, why don't we just have it look like exactly like the blockade runner radar dish? So the, the first ship you see in A New Hope that flies into camera has a radar dish that's a rectangular looking thing. And, doing what we do best for Star Wars. We just rip off what's already been done before. <laughs> and we just took that and literally just slapped that one. I've right talked on. to you about the honesty before. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's an homage. It's a respectful homage. Uh, but in terms of like recreating the ship, you know, digitally, right? There's like, you know, models existed originally. Where did you guys go back to for the, you know, to figure out how like the new digital Falcon is going to look like? Uh, the archives, really. I mean, that, that was the big thing was, um, and actually I have a, a slide of it here. Um, this was the, the uh, Empire Strikes Back um, Falcon model, which is gorgeous. And it's so well built, it makes you just want to photograph it and just use it as is. And that's kind of what we did, uh, um, with the exception of the fact that it, it was all turned into to real CG. Um, we, we had versions of it that were sort of projected photographed, but those don't, those don't hold up as well as actually being able to render it and light it properly. So we basically took these photographs and we used them you know, to the nth degree. We were putting every little decal, and there are a lot of really funny little um, decals all over the ship that people put on and as they were building it, and little um, details that really only our, our painters even know where they all are, but they put every single nut and bolt exactly where it should be, and it took probably about a year of development to, to make the Falcon again, which seems crazy because it's that thing you go, well, you have that. Well, at least you're starting from something you have. And it's like, you don't really, and you want to build it properly and you want to have it be able to last. So we really took the time to, we spent that year building the Falcon and, um, you know, um, down Isn't to- Isn't there a little scale uh, Star Wars poster inside one of those models. I believe there is. Yeah, there's there's absolutely everything. I found, so an, did you include I that found an army or? man in one of the uh, in, in the Super Star Destroyer hanging out down in in the middle of the yeah. thing. In, in in all the gack that you, you'd never right. see him, but he's yeah. just sort of yeah. hanging out in there. Right. Really cool. <laughs> um, um, but the Falcon was, you know, that thing that you kind of craft with love because it's it's sort of it is a character in the film, and um, you know, as we uh, introduce it in this moment. Uh, I think this is a huge moment in the film. And That's I think huge. JJ knew that from the very, very beginning. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that was going to be. Yeah, and there was conversations about, you know, how covered up should it be? And, you know, it all just came down to sort of his instinct about what's the best way to introduce it. But I think that's a very funny way to kind of get into it and to see it for the first time. And it's almost like you're exhaling, you're letting out that, like, okay, I finally saw the Falcon. And, right. you know, you're getting yeah. that, that moment out. But at the same time, he gives you time to sort of enjoy it. It's funny, sound-wise at that moment, we probably, we had John Williams on our mixed stage. He came for all of our final mix playbacks, which was fantastic having him in there. 
Um, but that exhale moment, we were trying to time that perfectly when the Star Wars theme is supposed to kick in. We probably went over that and like we're just modifying it by frames and frames and frames until we felt like everyone's acknowledgement that you're seeing it is also, we didn't want to tip the hat, but we wanted you to like have it you know, dovetail into what you're thinking with the music and this emotional moment. But yeah, we certainly spent a lot of time just on that, just in the audio to get that part right. right. Yeah, this is, well. um, just talking a little bit about the, um, the technical aspects of building the Falcon, we, uh, knowing that we were building assets that we wanted to live for a long time and, and travel through multiple movies and be able to use it in, in multiple ways, um, we started looking at our material library, just the way that we, our, our basic shaders at ILM, and we sort of, with the Falcon in mind, kind of modernized everything um, <clears throat> with a new shader where we <clears throat> took a lot of new photographic reference and then we painstakingly matched all that photographic reference in CG. And that's something that, you know, every, every shop has their version of that. They have their sort of main shader that they render with. And we just wanted to take it uh, a little bit further and take it out of the, the realm of, uh, you know, knowing what we know about lighting now. Taking, ILM has this long history of artists being in control of everything, which is great. But at the same time, you just need these ground truths where you're, you're able to render predictably. So we, we spent a lot of time actually just making the CG, the ground truth CG of, of the Falcon and all the other Star Wars assets in this unified asset system a little bit more robust so that when we were doing things like um, you know, painting the Falcon for the first time, we were able to use Mari Lookdev and, and um, go through and paint the Falcon in layers where you could paint on this. I don't know if you've all noticed, but Star Wars has this history of not being the cleanest universe in the world and all the ships have this like layers of gack all over them. And so being able to paint in layers of dirt like that and have control over all those layers and not have it be sort of a mystery from shot to shot what you're gonna get. And the same thing with BB-8, being able to make him look absolutely perfect in comparison to the model mm -hmm. was really important. So that was sort of like a, a, we sort of revitalized how we built assets on the show. And that's gonna carry forward into a lot of other ILM shows and, and uh, Star Wars shows for sure. Going forward. Is that confirmation that the Falcon is in episode eight? <gasps> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is uh, this is uh, what the Falcon gimbal looked like. So for, for all those cockpit shots where you're looking at Ray, this is what we shot those in. And um, I think one big thing to note is that it's outside. And I think a lot of the things that gave the those cockpit shots authenticity is the ability to. Um, you know, see natural light moving around in the cabin, and, and it gives it a very organic feeling, and it doesn't make it feel like a stage sort of CG thing, mm -hmm. which is uh, great. And it's really how, how it would have been done back in the day, you know, and that's, that's the big thing, is the more you could do things like they were done during 4, 5, and 6, mm -hmm. the more authenticity you brought to this. And, the, you know, I've had so many people tell me, it really felt like I was watching a sequel to those movies, and that really felt good, you know, just to hear them say that they felt like they could have stopped watching episode 6, or a lot, a lot of cases they did. They did marathons at home, and they watched episode 6, and they went out to see episode 7, and they said, you just felt like it was the same universe and everything was a continuation, which was great. Yeah. Cool. Um, one other, um, um, talking about Jakku sequences, there's a moment where Finn comes across the crashed uh, TIE fighter. Oh, yeah. That was like a really, really fun sound sequence, Matthew. I was wondering if you yeah, could go and talk about that a little bit. There's some really weird, crazy something's happening there. Oh! 
I jumped again at the explosion. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gets me every time. Right? Yeah, that, that sequence, it was a, you know, no John Williams music in there, so we have to, obviously, we've got him in the room, so we want to make sure the soundtrack's going to be properly, we're going to up our game for him. But, um, yeah, it's that thing where there's practical effects on set. We had that, there was a giant TIE fighter that was there. Um, the explosion was a practical effect, so it's, it's enhancing what's on screen, and we had that absence of sound moment to give everyone a scare. Um, JJ really wanted that to be a big, big moment for the audience. Well, I think that's one of those things, too. You have no idea what that sounds like. Right. You know, you really don't know what it sounds like for, or looks like. I mean, yeah. it, it, coming up with the visually how it looks like yeah. for this thing to be working its way into the sand, with, and you're not really sure why. Right. That was a that was a challenging sequence for us as well. And um, I thought it was I thought it was cool not to have the music because it really added to the mystery of the thing. Yeah, mystery and the reality of his his isolation too. That was one thing in New Hope, when um, R2 and 3PO are first on Tatooine. It gets really quiet, and there's there's sections that have no music when he's in the when R2's in the canyon and he's hearing the Jawas kind of like scurrying around. That was really effective because it, it really brought you in there with them. So that's kind of what we wanted to go for here. You know, just also paying respect or ripping off the past. <laughs> it works, but um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that in the film. Yeah, what is the sounds when the uh, when it's what is it like? What are the sounds that make up that sound when it's kind of getting sucked into? The uh, getting sucked into the sand. That's uh, there's. There's dog food in a can being pulled out. Um, there's a long, low-frequency uh, burp happening, like it's it's being eaten. Basically, we wanted like it was like we we kind of treated it like it was being digested. So uh, we we put some digestive sounds in there, um, and then we have that nice rolling sort of thunder effect that happens. We wanted to have it as it blows up, you know, as he's standing there. You kind of hear the sonic boom of the explosion rolling off into the surrounds and just kind of giving it that realism. How many burps are in the movie in general? Burps in this movie? Uh, yeah, there's probably, I'd say on average, we put a, you know, one to three burps in every film. So there's a gentleman by the name of Howie that we, it's in our library that he, great burps from him. And you can, we get him at 192 kilohertz so we can take him way down and still get that diaphragm flutter. Uh, um. So um, when it comes to Star Wars, another vital thing that people are aware of are like, you know, are droids and the way droids yeah. sound. Obviously, there's a very, very cute droid in this movie. Um, but Eight. I understand that you have a history with droid sounds and voices personally already. Uh, I've played some voices for droids in, in various permutations of Star Wars. I played a... Do one. Do one! <laughs> no, I played a guy that, uh, he was the bad guy in uh, Revenge of the Sith, as General Grievous. He was the leader of the droid army. And, just a bad guy, just yeah, General was, Grievous, that's so, all. And then all of his dorky little compatriots, the, uh, the, the battle droids, all those little guys that are like, look out, Roger, Roger, all those guys. That, was, <laughs> that, was, well, that, that really was you! Yeah, that was me. Uh -huh. And but, then uh, yeah, Grievous would say stuff like, um, what's the situation, Captain? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> It was fun. It was really fun. I'm going to have you record like my, my voicemail. <laughs> you got That's it. Cool. You okay, got good. Um, but let's talk about BB-8, because yes. BB-8 is adorable amongst so many different ways, including the way BB-8 talks and sounds. So. Yeah, I have a little clip uh, I can show real quick of uh, it's Ray meeting BB-8 for the first time. <coughs> yeah, BB-8 was one of those <laughs> moments. Uh, was one of the first things JJ had us work on, and, and to the point where he wanted to have a real hands-on approach with it. So. Uh, Literally, we, we had a, uh, an iOS device that basically he could control timbre and pitch of oscillators. And we, and we set up sort of parameters that I thought he would like. And so at one point, this was going to be used on the set for him to actually you know, have BB-8 respond to the actors, because there'd be a lot of communication with BB-8 and the, and the other actors, more so than R2-D2 in the previous films. So this was originally conceived for that. And then um, 
I think that was his early ambition was to be able to do that, but then we ended up just having the puppeteers say boop, 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 you know, because it was yeah. just too much. I think JJ's a genius, but I think that was he probably... He needed to watch. Yeah, he needs to probably on, yeah. see what's happening in, yeah. the, in the shots as they're happening. <laughs> so we, we kind of uh, elaborated on that a little bit, and then it went into he would perform the sort of tones that would happen, and then uh, we hired... Um, uh, ben Schwartz, this comedian friend of JJ's, to come in and actually say what he, with, work out with JJ what the lines would be that BB-8 would be saying. And we cut those in editorially in the Avid for, for timing purposes. And then uh, we then took those oscillated tones at one point to give it a set more realism. We fed them through a talk box, kind of like that Peter Frampton you know, song, and fed it into... Um, a comedian, oh my gosh, why am I getting his Bill name? Hader. Yes, Bill Hader. I spent about a day with Bill Hader, with JJ, feeding the tones into Bill Hader's embouchure, and he was moving his mouth around, not saying anything, just playing the tones through his mouth. <laughs> and we re-recorded that, and then cut that a little bit more, and that, that's sort of what has become the, the voice of BBA. Do pictures of these recording sessions exist? Uh, yes, sure. I think I, we took some selfies maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was just like in a little editing room, we just kind of were playing around for about a day with Bill being hilarious. It's, uh, it's so evocative though, and but it also goes hand in hand with the design. I mean, James, what was the design process for BBA like? He was, he was something that JJ wanted fairly early on. He wanted, what is the new R2D2? And uh, we did a lot of research and kind of figuring out, well, does he float? Does he have multiple legs? And then one day we got this post-it. We're like, well, "What is this?" And it's uh, <laughs> and we're like, "There was very little, you know, there's very little dialogue or anything behind it. It was just like, here, just take a look at this." And, um, and we all were looking at it. And we're like, "Wow, this is like a, a rolling droid. How how perfectly Star Wars can this be?" And then uh, just from that, the simplest sketch, we we evolved it from, you know, this this little snowman-looking thing thing to this like really kind of cute, lovable character. And um, BB-8 fits right in the Star Wars world in that you know, we have all this drama happening. And then we, we get to cut away to a little comedy, a little something for the kids. Right. And, um, and then you, know, you can see in these drawings how, how, it, how it developed. And again, we, it's part of the process. And it happens in visual effects, too, where, where we, we go as far as we possibly can take it. And then we look at it and assess it. And eventually, it kind of comes back around to the simplest, you know, first point that we kind of took at it. And yeah. um, so our instinct was, or JJ's instinct was right, and that it's just that very simple silhouette kind of went out in the end. Yeah, we even had moments where we were trying to figure out things like, how, how does BB-8 get down the stairs? You know, how does he get up the stairs? And we tried, we tried a few different things in animation where we had, uh, we took some of the little circles on his body and we protruded little things out, but he kept getting scary. He kept looking like some sort of like treacherous sea urchin or yeah. something very <laughs> creepy. So. Every time we tried that, we went back to simple, you know, yeah. and it really works for, for a droid, I think, and, and it is because of the legacy of everything that's been established where you get, you know, the simplest thing in Star Wars is often the best, and, um, and it keeps him cute, and it, and it uh, makes him friendly, and, and I think that's what he really needed to be. At one point, he said, when we were working on what the sound of BB-8 was going to be, he said, well, let's make him sound like what he looks like, and I was like, well, he said, he looks, he's, the name BB-8, the B's and eights actually look like him. So why don't we have him, the word, like a, a symbol of a B and an eight look like the BBA, you know? Like, mm -hmm. And so, he was, uh, so at one point it was gonna be all B's and eighth notes. 
<laughs> but we, and we tried that. We actually tried that at one point. But then I think getting the, the his hands on and performing it and have, it was, was was more satisfactory to JJ at that point. Right. That's a perfect design note of seeing R two D two with BB eight and how they really do fit yes. in the same world. Yeah. Uh, some of the earlier design, again, we had all this tread work on it, so how could he move up a hill and, and really go across some, some ground? But it always came back to these very simple one color, two color shifting tones. And um, yeah, it's a perfect example of how they fit in that same world. Yeah, we were challenged too by that scene. We knew that scene was coming as well. So the fact that Ben Burt, who had created the R2-D2 sounds, which kind of broke the mold. I mean, everything that was in that R2-D2's expression was so iconic. And you know, every time we tried to go in a direction, it would sound too much like R2-D2. So the fact that we had to have them have a conversation at that point, and they seemed distinct to us, it was like, OK, finally, I think we got it. But it's, there is like that Venn diagram that's kind of R2 and, and, mm. and, and BB-8, yeah. kind of similar there. Um, there were a lot of different versions of um, BB-8 you know, on set you know, from the uh, the, the one that, that was pushed with the long arms, the one with short arms, the one that had a mechanical drive on the left, and one that had a mechanical drive on the right. And everyone on set would sort of get together when we started a shot and sort of say, OK, which, which version of BB-8 is this one going to be? Depending on where he was facing towards camera, we'd pick the best one. And there was the wiggler, who was just the guy that sat there and just wiggled his body. Mm -hmm. There was really, it was, you know, and they all had a slightly different capability. Well, if we put the wiggler in, he can do it a little faster. His head's a little quicker, you know. So we had different parameters for which one you would use when. And, and then, of course, we added a bunch of the um, the extra stuff in CG afterwards in terms of the, the hand and the ropes. And, and here's a little demo of all the stuff that he's got in his body. This doesn't actually appear in the movie this way. This is him showing off. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the video game that's coming in. Yeah, sure. <laughs> But we did have to build a perfect you know, uh, CG replica of, of BB-8 so that we could have him perform in some scenes that, that he wasn't in or that he couldn't have been in. For various reasons, and um, and it was a real challenge. You know, this is actually a CG BB-8, which I don't think very many people realize the very first time you see him. Um, and uh, the fact that we had a real character, though, to reference, it was huge, and, and it means everything in terms of being able to bring authenticity to something. Is to, to be able to look at something on set and go, "That's exactly what that looks like," and and to recreate that. That takes a lot of the guesswork out of when you're trying to create CG objects and, and make them look real. If you have him as a real character, and not to mention the fact that everyone just believing he's real is a huge thing too. You know, the, um, I'm not saying it doesn't look great. And for, to be honest, I can't tell the difference. We have, you know, a, you can play a, a drinking game that only we know the answers to where you try to figure out what's CG and what's. Um, uh, but it, it's, it's one of those things where uh, the fact that he is a real character and that people interact with him in the film, it means a lot um, in terms of bringing him to life, you know. Well, all the strategy, too, you had like hybrid, would be like a digital head and then like the physical yeah. body. And there's a bunch of that going on, depending on, you know, maybe he needed to react to someone's line, so his head needed to turn one way. Um, and you don't realize that until you're in the edit and you're, you're cutting shots together. And then you find out that you know, it's just like with actors. You, know, you just don't have quite the right shot. And we have the ability to, to manipulate that. So. Well, that's interesting how it becomes such a big storytelling tool. Like, there's that one moment where, um, I mean, you can tell the story better, where there's a shot that, where, um, of Kylo Ren where he has his mask off that then got moved around. Yeah. And in the movie, he has his mask on. Yeah, there was a, a point at which he's talking to Snoke where he, he in the uh, film as shot, had his mask off and, and was holding his helmet under his arm. And then uh, was decided later on that we didn't want to reveal his face to the audience or to Ray too early in the film. And because of the way the scenes got shifted around, we needed to put his mask on. So our team in London put the mask on. And I don't, I don't think anyone really even realizes that. There are some very funny takes of him, though, where he has his mask on and is holding the helmet. <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> so we did have to get rid of that. <laughs> right. Um, so this is Star Wars, so I would be remiss if I did not bring up the topic of lightsabers. Yes. Um, there's a new lightsaber in the movie, and there are new lightsaber sounds. 
Um, Matthew, would you like to talk about the you know, lightsaber sounds? And yeah, I mean, once again, another iconic sound that um, everyone's very familiar with. And so we uh, wanted Kylo's saber to have a quality to it that was broken. Um, I wonder if I can play, let's see if I have one little quick clip here. So yeah, that, that scene, I mean, that, that saber we wanted to have, it's, it's unfinished. And one of the cool things about working on the film is that we got to go out to the set and I got to hold the saber in my hand and look at it and see how it was designed. And it was an un, we wanted it to be an unfinished design. It was, it was not done the way a normal Jedi saber was made. And so um, it's, it's like it could blow up in your hand, basically, yeah. is what JJ wanted it to be like. And so we put a lot of uh, electrical sort of malfunctioning in there. We also put a low frequency tone in it, which is different than any other saber we've done. That's like mm -hmm. it, it really dark side and really, really dangerous. Um, and actually, there's things like um, there's a slowed down explosion in there. There's also the purring of our sound designer's cat, Porkchop. I'd be <laughs> remiss to not give a shout out to Porkchop. <laughs> um, but is in there as part of the, the low tone when it's, uh, when it's just idling. Uh, but that, that's, that's, you know, all those little elements come together to make this thing that's just dangerous, basically. Yeah, I think all of that same stuff translated into the visual aspect of it, too. And I remember working early on on just trying to come up with, you know, how do you make this unstable thing look different? And we, we went through many variations, and a lot of them looked too much like a flaming sword, you yeah. know, and he was just very adamant, it, this isn't a flaming sword, it shouldn't look like a flaming sword, but it's got to have a bit of that flaminess to it to make it look a little more dangerous. Um, we, we knew we wanted sparks coming out, but of course our first iterations of it were it looked like something out of a, you know, some sort of a, a fireworks show. Yeah. <clears throat> so we had to tone that back until we found just the right amount. And th that electrical um, thing you were talking about, we mm -hmm. do have these little strings, we call them the strings that, that pop out um, every once in a while that kind of break off of the, um, the main part of the blade, which was, you know, it was sort of a difficult thing to get the balance of all of that right. And so we did a lot of different um, balancing of uh, the strings versus the sparks uh, versus the, the flaminess of the ends of it. Yeah, all that played into what is the personality of 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 this sort. Everybody had the person, you know, a blue lightsaber obviously reflected one thing as opposed to a red. But really, we were trying to define a little bit of what the personality of Kylo was through his through his weapon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Did it go through like a lot of the hill? Did it go through different iterations in the design process? Yeah, there were there was some really early stuff and. Um, I think once the the hilt idea came came out, it was like, oh, that's done. We got we yeah. got our design. Um, well, it's a bold, it's a bold choice, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing about it is that it really is uh, something that everyone had a reaction to. Not everyone, you know, their first reaction was was this is different, you know. Yeah. But I think a lot of people did come around to the fact that it is a bold choice to have such a different weapon. Once they once they kind of got to know the character, I think it made a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and what about the, I mean, what was the way you guys did that, uh, the effects for the lightsabers? I mean, well, it, this time it was a bit different. Um, before we used a technique that we called wooden sticks, where we would uh, <laughs> bash wood sticks together and then we would roto those sticks and then we put glows on them. And uh, this time we, we took it up a notch where we were actually, and, and this has a lot to do with just being, you know, 30 years later and with technology, being able to, to go somewhere and, and uh, take these LED tubes and um, have them be strong enough that you could you could pick them up and still swing them and they weren't too heavy. You could bash them against each other and they weren't going to shatter. And that you could have these effects, these great effects, like um, they could turn the intensity of the light up and down. And when they hit, they actually did flash. And you can see when, like for instance, when uh, Finn and Kylo are up against the tree and he's pressing them against the tree. And a lot of those flashes in that cool interactive light came from the sabers. You know, it, using them as a lighting element was something that, you know, we had done 
some of that on like episode three, but not a lot because you weren't always sure if that was going to be in the right spot or if it was the right intensity. But when you had the actual saber emitting it, you know, it really um, it added something to to a lot of the scenes. Like this one, for instance, it really I'm sure it actually added to Ray's performance because oh, God, yeah. <laughs> she really right felt there. like there was this glowing hot thing next to her face. You know, so she was able to sort of channel that into into the the acting. You know, which is great. Um, and uh, having those things you know, clashing like that makes those actors really feel like they're really in battle, which is great. Yeah. We had an early art discussion on whether, if you notice in the original movies, there's no interactive lighting at all because they, as you said, they just kind of re replace these reflective swords, yeah. these wooden swords. So uh, I don't know if they did it in the prequels, but it was a discussion we had where it's like, are we going to see light really bouncing against the actors? And how is that going to play differently than these original movies, which you never really saw. That was it a magic light, or was it yeah. you know something they just simply? But I think once you saw it, it looked so good. That it, it did. Was, it yeah. was, I think no once you back. see it, it was yeah. like, all right, yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah, there's like the moment between Kylo Ren and Rey, where she like has like you know the Force beam comes up, and like that kind of like sells the entire idea. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah. like that red and that blue on each of their faces kind of like right. makes that yeah. moment. Yeah, and then we did do 3D. Uh, we did use 3D particle technology to, to actually render the swords this time, which allowed us to do a lot when they clash. You know, in terms of the sparks coming off and, and different things happening when they hit objects. You know, we were able to actually augment that in CG after the fact, which was a huge um, boost for us. That's something that we weren't able to do in the in the prequels. Awesome. Yeah. Well, guys, I could literally talk to you about this movie like for like another 40 hours, but the the hour growth late. So ah. um, I just want to thank everybody for uh, you know for talking today. I'm you know at Two Box, Matthew Wood. Thank you. Um, and thank you for coming out to watching the panel.